Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, thanks for joining today. I'm very excited to introduce this interview with our guest, Nathan Thompson. He's the host of the Escaping Samsara podcast, which if you haven't listened to, I'm sure you will love. It's about spiritual practices and transformation. And I was just on an episode released last Friday. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, head over to the Escaping Samsara podcast and take a listen. He also has interviewed many wonderful guests, including Ajahn Achalo, Bhante Panya Pata, Richard and Mary Freeman, uh, David Williams, and so many others. You will just really love all of these interviews. They're so interesting, and it's wonderful to hear about these different spiritual teachings and traditions and people's experiences with them. So without further ado, here's Nathan Thompson. Hi, thanks for joining the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case. It's a pleasure, as always. And we are joined by my friend Nathan Thompson, who is living on the Gold Coast and is the host of the Escaping Samsara podcast, which if you haven't tuned into, I'm sure you all will love. You know, I also lived uh, on the Gold Coast in Chicago. So it's so cool (laughs) to talk to someone from Chicago again on the show, Nathan. I'm really not from Chicago. I don't know where that came from. Um, That's uh, uh, just just north of the Chicago River is the Gold Coast, and it's a great bustling neighborhood. And so that's where you live. No, I've uh, ended up on the Gold Coast in Australia, even though oh, I'm British, oh. via my wife, who is Australian. Oh, she's Australian. How? Did, oh, what's what's her name? Her name's Rachel. Rachel, how did you two meet? We were living in Cambodia and working there, and uh, we met in a bar called Reggae Rooftop, which is, as the name implies, they play reggae (laughs) on a rooftop in Phnom Penh, known as a bit of a dive bar. It's not somewhere that I would have usually gone, but I saw her, thought she looked really beautiful, and uh, we had a mutual friend because my neighbor was, um, is sort of her best friend, but I didn't know at the time. And um, so it was kind of via her that we sort of met and a bit of a bumpy ride at first, but then, uh, you know, it worked out in the end. Because it was, it was off and on or it was distance or what was, why was it bumpy? Well, you know, there's a thing. uh, Yeah. I'm just going to start oversharing. Why not? There's a thing called a set that I developed called a set menu date. And you see when I was dating a lot at the time and I used to have like a, a date that I would felt very comfortable with. And I would generally take girls on pretty much the same date in the same order as you know and and then it turned out i i actually took her friend on that date her best oh, friend no. <laughs> yeah so then so i took i took her on the date that i would so i would you know go to a trendy noodle bar you know then hop on the on the back of the motorbike you know drive to like a nice quiet spot by the river have a little kiss drop them home perfect gentleman thumbs up right but uh, <laughs> i didn't away. bank on the fact right i didn't bank on the fact that uh, she i you know her friend had been on that same date. I mean, I didn't, it didn't go anywhere with her friend. It was just a kind of one day. Okay. This, there's no chemistry here. Let's move on. 
but uh, wow. she was a little bit perturbed by that, and it took me <laughs> it took me a month of uh, a month of further wooing to uh, get her to come round. You had to get a little more creative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's really cool because it. I, you know, I lived in England f- for some time. They don't really date there, do they? I mean, the, you go for you a go drink a, in the pub because you go for too, a drink in the pub, yeah. and then you meet somebody, you say hi, and then you go have sex, and like that's the date. That's that's quite accurate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like what we, but we have like layers and and rules, and they're like you have like first, second date, and like rules of behavior on each on each day in the states, and it's all very, it's all very much a like a like a dance. And, and yeah. you know, if you're just going to jump into that kind of thing at like 30, you're going to really screw that up, I think. True. Um, I mean, I prefer dates myself. Um, yeah, even if those dates were going to the pub. But um, yeah, it is funny that, you know, England is often seen as more formal in a lot of ways. And in a, in a lot of ways it is. But then in some ways, you know, like America, Canada, they have sort of quite rigid social structures that England doesn't share. So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's just a difference. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get, get, I'd like to get more back more into that in a bit. Um, I want to ask one question. Yeah. Were you practicing Ashtanga yoga when you were in uh, Cambodia? Yes. I, I'd started already by the time I went there. Yeah. Did you practice that? Uh, they have like one tiny little shallow there, don't they? Well, yeah. Interestingly, it was one we had a sort of self-practice group because there was no teacher there and it was sort of founded by uh, a woman called Dwee Dwee uh, Willem Willemum I'm going to mangle her name Willemum Krishnan I think is her name wow. anyway because I yeah, Dwee she's she's fantastic oh amazing practitioner amazing woman and me and her sort of would founded this kind of little self-practice group that sort of grew and shrunk over the years but you could always rely that Dwee would be there every day day in day out so anyway, we had this self-practice group at a little shala called um, Krama Yoga. Um, anyway, that we had to kind of leave that studio in the end. And uh, now Dwi is, um, you know, putting her time in with Sharat and is running a pretty decent um, Mysore program uh, from her house in Phnom Penh. So yeah, if you're ever in the area, you should check her out. Yeah, cool. That's so neat. Well, I, th- I think this is really like the 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 key I want to get into is y- you you meet a nice girl in Cambodia. You're there, and we're going to talk more about your work as a journalist in a in a moment. But you you went from being a journalist in Cambodia, and then you just said you said I'm going to throw everything up in the air. I'm going to move to the Gold Coast of Australia. How did that happen? No, it didn't quite happen like that. Basically, I moved to Cambodia in 2013 and I lived there until um what was last year 2019 yeah yeah so basically we we sort of left around 2018-19 and then we moved to Laos and we were living in Laos and my wife Rachel she got pregnant in Laos and around about March she was a few months pregnant and we could see the coronavirus like closing in all the borders started closing oh. so we were like okay rachel's pregnant it's not going to be good for us to be trapped in laos um 
we'd rather be with her family on the Gold Coast. So we actually left. We actually arrived in in Australia the day they closed the borders. So oh, yeah, wow. it was a bit of a kind of hectic journey through via Singapore, and you know, flights getting cancelled left, right, and centre, and everyone's wearing masks and. Yeah, it was quite a wild ride, but we we found our way here, and it, it has worked out quite well because uh, Queensland hasn't really had a major outbreak as yet. So, yeah, mm, it's been it's been good. That's what I understand that the they're because of these very strict protocols they have in Australia. They really have kept uh, kept a uh, kept a, uh, tapped it down really. Yeah, and they live, you know, they're they're way out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, like one kind of massive island. So they they uh, are able to like lock down quite effectively, and uh, I think that's probably why they've done it. I mean, it was basically like speed of response and geographical advantage that they've sort of managed to escape. Although obviously Victoria, Melbourne had like a big big outbreak, but uh, a lot of places, especially Western Australia, they never even had an outbreak at all. I I had. A- Asked you in a in a kind of form letter that I, I sent you yesterday uh, if you if you happen to know Santina who was there in the Gold Coast and and you I think you said that you you didn't um, you you've only just moved there I suppose yeah we've been here since April uh, but I I haven't met Santina no but you did say something that was really interesting you said that you both shared a, a root teacher and that was. Um, was that a, a meditation teacher of some kind? No, it's um, Santina mentioned in a, the podcast she did with Taylor Hunt that her, uh, I think it was her first Ashtanga teacher is a guy called Mark Togney. And yeah. he's someone that I interviewed on my podcast. Uh, so, uh, and that, but I did that interview a year before. So I, I hadn't met him at all. And I only ended up studying with him because I just happened to be moving here. But uh, yeah, so I've actually been, um, studying with with Mark Togney and he's uh yeah he's a really really great teacher yeah getting a lot out of it what what drew you to interview him a year before you even moved to Australia well there's a cool video on um YouTube and it's titled something like Zen Monk does fourth series and I'm like what that's badass he's a Zen Monk in the fourth series like <laughs> that's awesome so I looked it up and I was yeah, and quite right there's a guy who looks very much like a Zen Monk doing fourth series and I was like that's badass <laughs> so I yeah got hold of his details via a, we had a mutual friend uh, that I I met and uh, so I got hold of his details and we did a really nice interview well, I, I think I'd just like to to go back to England for a bit, and I, I really kind of want, I, I feel like I, I've jumped a little bit all over with your story, and I want to kind of start from the beginning. Uh, as I understand from your bio, you grew up uh, evangelical Christian in London with with, with uh, your folks. Is that correct? Yeah, for London and and other towns very near London. Yeah. Yeah. And were both your parents evangelical? Your, your father was a was a pastor, as I understand? Yeah, my parents were uh, evangelical Christians, for sure. They're part of this thing called the New Frontiers Movement, which was, yeah, evangelical, yeah. And what kind of movement is that? Um, you know, I'm, I haven't really looked into it as an adult, but um, it's something like those kind of revival movements that you have in the states i think they took their their cue from those revival movements in the states 
but did it in a more kind of like subdued British way. But it was still pretty, <laughs> pretty big for the British, though. There was a lot of falling over, speaking in tongues, uh, you know, clapping and jumping around, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's good fun. It's good fun. I've, <laughs> I've done a fair bit of that. And it is a very happy clappy. Oh. And yeah, so people before your yoga career. Yeah, yeah. Back in, um, as we say colloquially, we say back in Louisiana, we would do a bit of happy clappy and fall down and shout and um, and you know if you you could you it's very creative to start speaking in tongues. It's it's <laughs> it's a nice feeling and mm. um, I, I I I miss it at times. Because, <laughs> but that's that's why I watch sports is that I can do this kind of primeval. Um, Primal, uh, you mean? Primal uh, shouting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the most the the interesting thing for me about the whole thing is that there's a few times when I was doing that kind of um, big Christian um, stuff, uh, I had spiritual experiences which are very similar in terms of flavor to the stuff that happens in my meditation and yoga practice now, and mm. I find that really interesting. Did you yeah, have a similar that's... experience, Russell? Um, I would say the very rarely in church did I ever have a spiritual experience. I don't know if I could say at, at all. I mean, it was it was. There's a wonderful sense of of. I, I'm going to contradict myself now. That there were occasionally there were moments where I would have a communal feeling where we were all rising up, and we were all going to pass out at the same time. And it was super exciting, um, and so in the in the in the Pentecostal churches that would happen, whereas in say more staid Lutheran or Presbyterian churches that that never happened. It was just always a lot of quiet sitting, yeah. and, you know, a bit like going to a, like a Quaker meeting in England. It's just a lot of people just sitting very quietly and uh, occasionally speaking. Yeah, I think for me it was these experiences, and there's just a handful of them, but they actually happened most most of them happened in these like yearly annual gatherings for all the New Frontiers people in England. So you'd be getting it's basically like a week long festival. Everyone's camping, and there is probably at least ten thousand people, if not twenty thousand people, there. And you've got these huge meetings in like massive barns and. You know, you can just imagine like the energy of thousands of people all, you know, speaking in tongues and jumping around. It's like <laughs> you can really get pretty into some pretty altered states of consciousness, uh, pretty high. I remember walking around once after one of these meetings and just just walking and like like I was overcome with like just like a, a kind of subtle and very powerful energy that just I just didn't know what to do with this energy and i just had to just kept walking and walking and just praying over and over in my mind like a mantra almost like you know thank you god thank you god thank you god and like a lot of spiritual experiences i came crashing down pretty quickly mm -hmm. and remember thinking like oh man like you know and then that kind of classic problem emerged that is a common one i think where you have like a really peak experience and then you have mundane life and the difference between the two seems so juxtaposed and difficult that just just that the fact that there's such a difference can be it's, depressing or something yeah. it's a bit like that that peter gabriel song salisbury hill 
where he I has. You don't know. Oh, okay. It, from Genesis. So Peter Gabriel came out and he, and he wrote this song and it was about wanting to split away from Genesis. And it was, and it's about this moment of, of euphoria and touching Christ. And then he just, he has this mundane life and he's, and he, he realizes that he can't talk about it at all with anyone because people think he's crazy or absurd. And so he just hides it. And mm. I, Something that so that you what you said reminded me of that song exactly, but also like that that there is this kind of um, this this feeling that when you have these these peak experiences, and I would have them at concerts, um, or I would have them at like a rainbow festival which is a, a kind of festival in the states where you just walk around naked with thousands of people. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. It's like a big hippie thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of um, hand in glove with going to a lot of fish or Grateful Dead shows. You then, you would then, oh, people would say, oh, we're going to go to a national park. We're going to do the same thing, but without music. And then, but then also this, the, 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 the Pentecostal thing was, it was a very similar feeling, but it was, it was not something that you could really carry with you through the rest of your life. And so you were, it was very alienating. At, 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 and I think is that that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, and I think that's why Buddhism was so appealing to me when I found it. Um, because what I found with Christianity was there wasn't any practical stuff you could do to, say, bring some of this stuff into your daily life. It was like, okay, pray, right? Yeah. But that wasn't enough for me. Like Buddhism has like serious like tech and practices that will change your mind like from the inside out so that these sort of what what might seem an ecstatic state just becomes actually integrated into your life and i know there are christians who do manage that but for me uh buddhism seemed to have, have a lot more practical stuff going on that i could get a hold of yeah that was very similar for me what attracted me to buddhism was the the practical um sort of i guess not rules but you know, ways that you could actually integrate these teachings into your behaviors and into how your mind is, how you're seeing the world along with like, you know, the meditation practices and things. But it was, you know, it was like those yamas and niyamas, that that kind of fundamental idea that everything you do becomes a part of your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, what? You know, I have to practice all the time. But um, <laughs> it was like, you know, as the sort of years go on, it just sort of emerges naturally. Not that I'm in any kind of special place or anything, but, you know, the, the ability to be mindful when you need to be. And if, you know, I've been practicing quite a lot of metta and the ability just to call up loving kindness when you feel like it because you've practiced enough to say, okay, I need to feel loving kindness right now. And for it to happen, like that's, that's amazing. Like that's like a huge gift. Mm. Yeah. I'd have to think that, that there, was a, there, there, there was a struggle in transitioning from a, um, a culture and I, I'm not going to say cult, um, though I, I probably mean it, um, that there's a culture in in the 
the the group that you're in with your family there's set behaviors and then you're going to break away from that and do something completely different with with buddhism i I'd, I'd have to think that was that was shocking for your your family members you know not not really because my whole family sort of fizzled that whole thing fizzled out for my whole family so you know nowadays my you know we don't my family don't go to those meetings anymore and haven't done for a long time. Um, so it, it wasn't a kind of cl- culture clash, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did they keep up with the Christian beliefs and practices? Yeah, to an extent, but it's much more Church of England style, you know. Like right. what Ezzy Azad said, it's, it's a religion based entirely around cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Finished university just barely, 
Um, wow. But I was. You did. Yeah, yeah. Like I wasn't. I, I would. I just did my best to scrape through that. Um, and yes. Yeah, so, but like I, I've been fired from every job I ever had. Right. <laughs> you know. Like, and so it just got to a place where you know, by the age of twenty six, I just finished rehab and it was like okay so now live your life but I had no idea how to do that so I was very lucky my parents did sort of like leave let me live at home and Mm -hmm. um, because also it was a recession it was after the 2008 financial crisis this was around 2011 and England was in a big recession so it was hard to get a job even if you were a functional person let alone a dysfunctional person so I couldn't even find a job so like I was kind of at my wit's end and I just thought, oh, do you know what? Can I swear? Yeah. Please, yeah. Oh, I, did. Right. I was just like, fuck it, right? Like if you won't give me a job pointing my finger at society, I'll give myself a job. So I thought, okay, what do I want to do? I'm going to write poetry. So I'm like, okay, right. My job now is just to write poetry. So every day I wrote poetry from then on. And like that just sort of grew into a writing career later down the road. But after maybe about a year or so. And I was in the performance poetry world. So I would be doing gigs and making contacts and just, you know, getting out there. And eventually that led to doing workshops in schools. And I ended up earning a bit of money and having a sort of mini career as a a kind of traveling poet that went into schools and sort of taught the kids. But I was still relapsing a little bit on drugs um, for the first year of that. So yeah, you know, I was still struggling to stay clean. But it seemed to me that the way to stay clean was to build a life that I loved and let that eclipse the shitty life that I was leaving behind. And I just had to keep on putting in the hours like, okay, fine. I relapsed. I spent a weekend with like some old friends getting high and I feel terrible about that, but I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm just going to get back and just keep putting in the positive hours, the positive work to try and like grow something to eventually eclipse, like I said, the, uh, the old ways. That's a, that's amazing that that you had that instinct to not like beat yourself up and get down on yourself because I think that then compiles the problem and and you kind of tend to give up, you know, you you're like, "Oh, I'm just going to screw this, go back to the old ways." But instead you kept your focus and and said, "Okay, I'm just going to keep keep building, keep moving forward and and you know, let yeah. go of that, that experience. Well, yeah, I have Ramdas to thank for that because, you know, the 12 step program didn't work for me. Um, and I was just sort of getting a bit desperate and I came across this old Ramdas talk where, and I, I remember very clearly he said something like, you know, if you have an addiction, keep, take up a spiritual practice, keep doing the things that will allow you to see yourself in a new way and the addiction will fall away when it's time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. And that's actually the route that worked for me. So yeah, it came from an old Ramdas talk. So thanks to Ramdas and whoever uploaded that to YouTube, because that was the thing. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. It's, it, it's interesting. Um, there's the way that you describe the kind of flow that's happening in your life and the way that you've, you've been able to create yourself and, and the kind of space you've had to, to to flower is really you know very much at odds with my experience of living in England because uh, I I you you mentioned something earlier about how Americans are are in in an odd way much more uh, rule bound 
than your experience of England and which maybe we were talking about dating and you know that's that's clearly true and yet when when I was in England right what I, what I what I kept butting my head up against was this conformity and the normativism that was ever present in the south and in Sussex and and in Essex where I was living that I I just felt like I constantly had to be you know restrained by those around me and apologized for and so I found that really unbearable to kind of be stultified that way and I'm I'm curious to know if that was also your experience, but it, it sounds really like you were in a much more of a free place. Not while I was living in, in England, no. Um, I should say the UK, really, because I was in Wales yeah. like a bunch of time. Um, yeah. hmm, I think that, you know, I think I relate to what you're saying to an extent. And to me, it's been my experience in pretty much any quote-unquote developed country you know where you Mm. have a functional society um that's quite and it depends on its functionality and its wealth for like the vast majority of its citizens to behave in a fairly linear way so it and that just sort of breeds an atmosphere of conformity like you say and you so for me it was more based around people's ambitions and and what they wanted to get out of life and uh, so conformity to me means just sort of thinking that, you know, getting on the housing market is 80% of like what you think about day in, day out. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and I think that that is, you know, that's, that's something that I didn't feel like I wanted to get involved with. Um, but as for, I don't know, maybe what I was getting from you was you, it was more of a social thing. Um, I don't know. I, f- I found there's there's a lot of like wild people around in, in the UK and Australia, if you know where to look. I mean, I'm surprised yeah. you didn't find them in Brighton. Brighton's a pretty hip place, you know? Oh, it's yeah, extremely hip. And I wasn't really even allowed to hang out with those people. <laughs> I think it was what? the Why company not? you were keeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, I, as I remember, and it's a long time ago, I was married um, to someone from the upper middle class and it was um the restraints were quite thick and strong really i felt so extremely hedged in and primarily just because everyone apologized for my behavior all the time though to be fair i probably acted like a child the uh, all the time as well (laughs) Well, i can see why that would bum you out like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, i'd like to know so you're at your parents house you're getting back on your feet and how on earth did you come across vipassana meditation uh that was actually um an old friend of mine a guy called ben he and i had grown up together and we'd had like some major falling outs due to drug-based behaviors but you know we met up randomly one day and i was sort of fresh out of rehab trying to you know, cope with the like soul destroying anxiety that haunted my every second. But (laughs) (laughs) And so we sat down and he was like, Oh dude, you know, this Vipassana course, it's so great. You know, I did it. It's so great. Your, your body will turn into pure energy. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. Um, (laughs) You you know, like, so, uh, you know, does it cost money? He's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's donation only and you can do this. And I was just like, 
yeah, why not? You know, I'll give that a go. Um, and yeah, like big major props to the Goenka organization for making it donation based because, you know, a lot of like really high quality retreats cost so much money and the Goenka yeah. people are out there like making it available to people like, like I was where you're just broke and you really need something. And, you know, they, yeah. they did that. And so, yeah, I did that course and it was so hard. I had to, I nearly walked out twice. I had to be sort of convinced to stay and talk down by the teacher. Uh, wow. Yeah, once or twice. Um, I remember just so much anger coming up, just years of anger and just rage. And like, it, like every cell was burning, you know, burning and burning and burning. Um, and what was weird was like, by the end of it, I remember walking out and for the first time in 10 years, I didn't want to take drugs. Um, and I was just in a space where like, what? I don't want to take drugs. That's, that's so weird. Cause usually there's a, there's a kind of washing machine loop on my mind 24 seven, apart from maybe deep sleep where it's like, take drugs, take drugs, take drugs. And it was gone. Right. And I was like, this wow. is nuts. Wow. And I knew then I was like, okay, I want to spend like the rest of my life doing this, you know, which is pretty idealistic. I, I did, I didn't end up becoming like a full-time monk as it turns out, but um, <laughs> I, you know, still practice, you know, uh, like a lot. I, I really prioritized it in my life. And I don't want to give the impression that it cured me because two weeks later, I did want to take drugs again and I did take drugs after that. But yeah. just the fact that I had two weeks respite was incredible. It was the most effective thing I'd ever come across. So I didn't even really want to be a Buddhist. I was just like, okay, this shit works. So um, yeah, I just started going a lot. I did a lot of courses. I served at the center. I worked in the kitchens, you know, just sort of, Amazing. yeah, you know, doing my best to, to keep on mining that, that goodness. Yeah. It really is true though. That's a that's a, a true saying that you do become energy. And it's I remember just lying in, in my cot on like day four and just like, holy shit, I'm just vibrating energy right here. I feel, I'm just rippling through me. It's wild. Yeah, was you where was your sense of self at that point? Could you would you have been able to point to it? Well then that's it's just the yeah, it's just behind the eyeballs, I think. Mm. <laughs> just the observer um it's i really i was really i really didn't expect that question so i um gosh because if you think about it if you're just vibrating energy that's always changing then where's the self yeah. right yeah i mean i suppose small s if you're talking patanjali mm -hmm. small s self mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah i i love that i love I mean, the, you can get into some really amazing states when you are in those retreats where all of your senses are are uh, restrained, basically. Yeah, <laughs> you're just like going so deep into into yourself and into sensation and and into these layers of meditation. It's it's really such a luxury, actually. But you know, when I was doing a lot of sitting a lot of retreats i didn't really realize what a luxury it was <laughs> oh yeah absolutely yeah i i would say um that having a sitting practice or excuse me having a um an asana practice that teaches one how to sit on the ground is um is incredibly helpful i remember um I was si I was sitting in Bada Konasana, so I'm just sitting on the ground with my knees out wide, 
And I've been sitting like that, you know, days in and days out because I was open in my hips. And I, I, there was a young man just to the left of me who was sitting there every day next to me. And he was, um, he had a mound of pillows around him trying to prop up his knees. And his back was very curved and his chin was almost down, you know, to his knees at that point. And he was just so extraordinarily uncomfortable. He was, I could see how much physical pain he was in. And he came up to me after the course and he complained and he said, what the fuck are you doing, man? Cause I'm like, I'm looking over at you and it's like, really? Like you're just sitting there. <laughs> and it's really helpful walking into it with, with like an Ashtanga yoga practice. And I, I think you mentioned in, in your bio that you you had also started looking at yoga because you wanted to be able to sit. Yeah, um, it was probably – I started Vipassana before I started yoga. So it was basically I started Vipassana uh, almost exactly a year before I started Ashtanga. And uh, I dabbled with yoga a little bit. But I think I was quite lucky that I was able to sit without too many problems kind of naturally. Oh, good. Um, yeah, but but I ended up doing yoga more. I mean, obviously it strengthens your sitting. I wasn't saying I didn't have perfect sitting. So so being able to sit, you know, very strong sitting was definitely an appeal. Um, but also just the meditative aspect of it because it uh, it I just felt like it gelled really well with with the vipassana stuff I had going on. So I I took on the ashtanga practice as a support to the vipassana at the time. That's that was my thinking. Mm-hmm. And you've such a unique path into ashtanga can you tell us a little bit about that uh well it's yes i mean this is the bit where i like i basically go out into like freak zone but whatever you're like Um, the rogue yogi rogue rogi yeah um (laughs) that's a dad joke i'm a dad i'm a dad now so i i'm allowed i like that the rogi (laughs) i know i know a lot of rogies i can yeah actually Good. Um, well, I mean, for me, it, it was weird because I, I basically had no money and I lived in the middle of Wales. So my parents lived in this like rural community in Wales. So there was literally no way I could I could get to a teacher or a shala. And I got hold of Kino McGregor's DVDs. Um, I never heard of Kino, never heard of Ashtanga, but I was just fed up with this kind of westernized, smiley, you know, love and light type yoga. And I saw Ashtanga and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, at least that sounds Indian. So, like, mm-hmm. let's go with that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I, I just happened to get uh, Kino's, um, yeah, primary series and intermediate series DVDs, and I, I looked at them, and you know, Kino's like such a fascinating person to watch. Like, I remember being like, I did, okay, I'll be honest, I developed this huge crush on her, like just watching her. I was just yeah. like, wow, this woman's like amazing. She can do all this stuff, and so you know, I gave it a try, and I think I was. I mean, I was luckily I had quite open hips, so I was able to do a lot of it. So I did. I well, didn't sort of fall down straight away. Um, I had very tight hamstrings, but uh, I just thought, okay, well, I'll do this twice a week. And after maybe six months or so, when I sort of learned at the, the sequence of the standing poses, I, I had like a cheat sheet. I ended up in Hamish's Shala Dharma Dharma Shala oh. in London. Oh. Yeah, because yeah. I happen to be in London, right? So I, wa- I walk in, like, completely green. All I'd known is just watching Kino. And, like, With those there's little just feet these... on the ground everywhere. And, like, what are these little feet for? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, 
I like walk in and I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? Like this is, wow. this is like some kind of oven and people are doing the yeah. most crazy shit. And I think, yeah. I don't know if it was that first trip or the second trip I made to Hamish's where someone just came along and put my legs in behind my head and supped to Kormasana. Oh, and yeah. I was oh, like, yeah, they felt it. what yeah. the hell is going on? Like I, right. my mind was completely blown. It's and I weird think, when, yeah. when someone else can feel what your body can do before you do. Yeah, yeah, and it's such an amazing feeling, actually, when you get an adjustment like that. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, it I, it had been a long time since I'd had an adjustment like that. And it, the last time I had it was recently. And it, I literally hadn't had an adjustment like that for years. And I went to Mark Schaller and I, you know, he came up to me like uh, when I was doing Raja Kapitasana and he just sort of like pulled my feet. And then, like, up past my ears, and I was, like, looking, I could see my feet either side of my face, and I was like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? And I was like, oh, thanks, Mark. I haven't had that experience yeah. for a while, but there you, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You know, you know I, I have to say that I, I feel like, um, and we, we maybe we should edit this part out, but I've, I, I feel like the, the heroin addicts that I've known have all had really flexible practices. Like there's something about this massive dose of of heroin. I think just completely fucking relaxes your body that <laughs> I did never got. Really? I never got that. Like the fucking heroin addicts are all like, "Oh yeah, I'm just like super flexible." And like, I, oh, I it's so irritating. It's I'm so gonna, fucking irritating. We're going to have to disagree, man, because like when I was <laughs> when I was taking heroin, like I don't know about the effect of the drug, but I was doing no exercise and I was living entirely on Haribo sweets. So like after a year of that, <laughs> I was I was I was like quite overweight and stiff as a board. So mm-hmm. I, it wasn't me for sure. Uh, but then like after you come down i think it just like it all when all all of it just leaves your body and it leaves like this it leaves like a pudding of flex of flexible matter okay fair enough fair enough let's say heroin good for yoga the lifestyle of heroin not so much (laughs) (laughs) well okay so you you're in hamish's child then suddenly Overnight, you're in Cambodia and you're living on a in a temple. How did that happen? Um, well, you know, I wasn't doing very well in the UK, as as I said, and you know, I was doing poetry workshops in schools, but I wasn't making like any money really. I mean, it was just something to do. I'd I'd be paid a bit, but not much. And my brother worked in inter- international development at the time, and he had a colleague. A, Cambo- a Cambodian American woman called Sarong who was looking for volunteers for a new project, and yeah, she she took a shine to me, and so yeah, off I went to uh, rural Cambodia, and it was just me and her. Um, she hadn't had anything set up because it was a new NGO, so she had no accommodation or anything. She, we were literally kind of the first people to arrive. And this was her mother's village, so and she could speak the language. Wow. So she had a connection oh, wow. to the people there, and she could speak the language. And she wanted to set up like a English teaching thing, and I was going to be the English teacher. Um, so I needed somewhere to live. So basically, we turn up in the pagoda, and I'm sort of introduced to the head monk, 
who looked at me. <laughs> he was, he's a grumpy guy. Like I didn't know, but the villagers call him the angry monk. I, I think it's affectionate. <laughs> I don't know. But he was very kind though, because he let me like live in his house and he had quite a nice house because he was the head monk of the district or something. And um, so I sort of moved in with the head monk and I had like a, like a little room and uh, yeah, I just started teaching English to the school kids. And what was so surprising to me was that I, they weren't meditating this, the head monk would spend his evenings smoking and watching Kung Fu films with the local, <laughs> yeah, with the, with the local kids who would come because they didn't have TVs maybe. And they would, so they'd all just be hanging out watching Kung Fu films. Um, wow. And all the kids would be sitting on the floor and the head monk would be on his chair. Cause you know, that's the, the protocol. And I was a bit like, whoa, this is crazy, you know. And, um, yeah, you know, so I, I was hanging out there and I was teaching English for a bit. And um, then I started driving to Phnom Penh, the capital, which is about a two-hour drive away. And, uh, you know, on a little motorbike, um, just dodging cows and school children and murderous SUVs that would be coming down the road at like a hundred miles an hour, just everyone scattering in their wake. And I'd be like, okay, you know, get to Phnom Penh. And uh, yeah, then I met some people down there and um, I was already contributing some articles to newspapers and, you know, I just sort of, yeah, started making contacts with the journalist community there, met some really good mentors and, and as the years progressed, I ended up moving to Phnom Penh and working as a journalist, first uh, contributing to Vice News and then later CNN and Al Jazeera and stuff. That's incredible. At this point then, you've become president of the overseas press club no, that happened around 2016 i think um, that's so just i an, moved to cambodia in 2013 that's a phenomenal arc of a of a life to go from you know you know say living in a squat in london to you know finding meditation moving to a temple and then being president of the overseas press club i mean that's that's extraordinary well, I mean, it was I was pretty lucky, and also um, the Overseas Press Club of Cambodia is quite a small organization, so it's not like I would, <laughs> it's not quite on the level of um, you know the Bangkok Foreign Correspondents Club or whatever. But but like it was, it, but we we were small, but we were effective. It, and um, yeah, there was a time when um, the government of Cambodia were cracking down on the free press. There was mm -hmm. there used yeah. to be three or four English language newspapers, two really high quality ones, the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post. And um, the Cambodian government cracked down on them and basically forced them to shut um, and kind of gutted the Phnom Penh Post, took them over, put some kind of government stooge in charge, you know. And during that time, um, yeah, like that was, you know, I had to kind of coordinate the response from the, Cambodian foreign press community and I was giving out like statements and doing a few interviews here and there and I wrote an op-ed for CNN and stuff and there was so yeah like it was a small organization but we were definitely effective at, at doing what we were meant to do which is to support the interests of foreign journalists in Cambodia yeah that's incredible is that still your profession now are you still a, a freelance uh uh, I'm I'm confused as to what my my profession is. Like I'm I'm basically um, we're we're on maternity leave right now, and um, I I pub the last thing I published was back in April or maybe March this year. So um, I've actually just like working on some other sort of projects, you know, the podcast and and writing uh, some personal projects 
and looking after the our little baby. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure really where it goes from here. <laughs> Why did you want to start a podcast? Okay, so the reason I wanted to start a podcast is because, you know, I felt there was like a niche in the podcast market at the time to explore some of the higher limbs of yoga. I felt like they weren't being talked about a lot. And me and uh, my friend Evgeny were really interested in pranayama and prajahara and meditation techniques. So I think what we wanted to do with it is to, yeah, like get get into those areas and, and talk to people about their own personal spiritual experiences. And I felt like we felt like there was a niche for that kind of thing. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and we decided just to go for it. And, yeah, it's been great. It's been good fun. How many how many episodes have you, have you done so far? Uh, I think we're on about episode 18 or 19. You've interviewed some really interesting uh, guests. Who's been your favorite? <laughs> Can uh, we ask that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like apart who, from maybe, you, who, obviously, who did, Harmony. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. Um, I really enjoyed interviewing uh, Ajahn Achalo, who's a Australian Thai forest oh, man. You know, I met him at Chithurst in England. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I just wandered in. I don't even. I don't even know how I got there. But I wandered in um, to meet Ajahn Semedo and shared like, you know how you do like shared like chocolate and cheese in an afternoon yeah. with him. Yeah. And then there was an afternoon because that's all you're allowed to eat, evidently. And then and then this is like a perfect life, really. And then in the, in the afternoon, we got to meet him and talk to him about his experience. He was so fucking funny. Which, which guy, Semedo or Achalo? Achalo. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he was great. Yeah, there's I, I there are little nuggets from his talk that that stay with me uh still today where um he he said, you know, I I um I I, I was going to do a 6-month silent retreat, no talking, no eye contact, just going to sit and meditate and um and uh I'm sitting down, I've got up my robes, it's the first half hour and I sit down and I said, "All right, here we go. And I sit. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm bored already. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's so, it's so real and so honest. And that's just what I, what I really love about these old practitioners is just how fucking honest they are about how really hard it is to be human. Yeah, actually, he's like a legend and uh, he's got some amazing guided meditations online and i think they might be on spotify definitely on the insight meditation app and that's how i found him and like i totally recommend checking out some of his meta meditations i mean he really opened up the practice of meta for me in a way that it it never never had been before and yeah his meta instructions are so good i really enjoyed them so yeah it was a real privilege to uh, have a chat to him and he was yeah wonderful in in well on the phone you know he was great that's incredible. And and if people are interested in hearing your interview with him, you just released that episode, I think, maybe one or two no, weeks ago, that's, right? No, that's from a f- month or two ago. So A month or yeah, two you, ago. Yeah, you okay. just, just check out uh, Escaping Samsara, you know, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, we, our website is escaping-samsara.com. So you can find all that stuff there. And your interview, Harmony, which is coming out 
next week as of when we record so probably by the time this this podcast is out it'll be yours will be out too so Yay. yeah check it out guys <laughs> what what books are you are you writing now I, you you said that you you've been working on some things yeah um well i've i've got a manuscript a sort of drug addiction memoir type book um I have uh, a biography, uh, I'm not going to say about who, um, that's like a proposal. So when you do nonfiction, you do a proposal rather than write the full manuscript. And I've been writing, well, trying to write a thousand words a day for the first 90 days of my daughter's life, which is a project coming to a close. I totally failed to do 90 days. I've got about I think I've missed about 15 days, but I'm hoping to finish strong and I'll have like a good amount of material then. And yeah, who knows what's what's going to end up with that? But I'm I'm just struggling to get published, get an agent, that kind of thing. You know, I'm going through that sort of just like relentless rejection. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it really it really is hard. And uh, who knows um, if they'll you know self publishing is always an option. But you know, I I really appreciate working with professional editors because I think they can really bring out stuff in your work that you couldn't yourself. So that's yeah. the main reason I'm trying to you know, go the traditional route, but it's not having much success so far, but yeah, yeah. plan to keep trying. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the, um, method I hear is just keep trying. <laughs> yeah. Got to, yeah. Got to keep doing it. And keep then maybe, it. maybe self-publishing if that, if I really can't, can't make it work. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I'm a, I'm a painter. And yeah, you um, mentioned that in your talk with, um, oh, I forget his name, but, uh, the guy that left, the Sherat thing. Tim. Tim. Yeah. 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 Very cool. I, uh, I was accepted into the Royal Academy summer exhibition. And then I, I also had a number of, of exhibitions in the Royal Academy um, uh, portrait award and the landscape, uh, Royal Academy landscape award. And I was all, that was, a that was um, the point in my life where I thought I was going to have that was going to be a turning point. My whole life was going to turn around. I was finally going to be a painter, but actually it, it's been relentless rejection ever since. So um, that's not really going to be, that's not very uplifting. Uh, I know what you mean though. Cause I, I remember when I first had like a really big, like long form piece in a, in a weekend supplement, you know, the kind of gold standard journalism stuff. And I remember yeah. the first time that happened, I was like, things are going to be different for Nathan from now on. <laughs> and then the next yeah. week I was just like, well, that basically changed nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I heard an interview. Uh, I forget who it was with um, a female writer, but she was also saying that, that when she released her book and she was on Oprah and it was a, a um you know she was getting all these yeah she was getting all these calls to do interviews and and everything and she was the most broke she'd ever been in her whole life and she was just like trying to hold it together and her husband was calling her and like we didn't pay rent this month and (laughs) i was like wow like the artist's life is hard yeah, I think I might need another source. I definitely need another source of income, you know, for sure. <laughs> it's I, so I, challenging. I, I have another source of income, I can tell you. Because it's, at the end of the day, it's like you, you go into the studio because and, and to write or to, to paint because you you need to or you, 
or I'm like a real sour son of a bitch otherwise. And, and I just something that I, and I, I feel like it's completely at odds with yoga and Buddhist practice, which is like being okay with things as they are. But then I feel like I'm not okay with things if I'm not doing that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I got like two thoughts on that, which is one is the James Hillman book, uh, something about the soul. It's his most famous book, but he puts forward the idea of the daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N. And that is some kind of spirit that everyone's assigned to make oh. you do your work in the world. So hmm. if you're an artist, you usually have a fairly crotchety daemon that's just poking you all the time. <laughs> you know? So that, yeah. uh, you know. But then like for me, um, one thing that's, that's my Buddhist practice has helped me with is that, you know, um, a lot of my writing, a lot of what drove my my ambition to be a writer was a kind of need for recognition, a kind of insecurity, a kind of like wanting to be special, wanting to be noticed, and just not feeling good enough, you know. And so for that was, I didn't know it at the time, but like, as I look back, I can see that, yeah, this sort of need for recognition was really driving a lot of that. And yeah. my practice has really uh, eased that and helped heal that. So now when I write, it's not actually tinged with the same desperate need for attention that it was. Now it's much more like, yeah, it's hard work, but that kind of aspect of it has been sort of like let go of. And and so that was an interesting thing. I mean, have you experienced something like that? You know, it's interesting when you, just to make a circle out of this is like, I think that may have been actually at the heart of why I was so uncomfortable in England is that I did walk around constantly wanting people to realize how special I was yeah. and it didn't really go over well. And then I'd be more and more frustrated that I, that I was just constantly seeking specialness and it was deeply frustrating. And I think the, as I've calmed down now in my forties, I think that I'm okay with not being the center of attention all the fucking time. Mm. And but still want to go and do the work in the studio, and that's and that's fine. That I can go and 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 work with my own stuff in there, um, but not feel like in every conversation with family that it needs to be about me. Yeah, and I think even really successful artists and musicians go through a similar thing where, like, in their early years, it's sort of like, oh, everybody look how special I am, and then you know, as they get older. They're just chill. Like Brian Eno springs to mind, you know, if you see him these days, he's just chill doing awesome stuff and he doesn't really care, you know. But he's not uh, a, a household name to every 14-year-old. <laughs> no, that's true. He should yeah. be. He should yeah. be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was for us when we were 14, but like, yeah. Do you feel compelled to write? Do you feel like it's therapeutic and and a part of maybe your practice even? Um, I don't really know. Um, the, the, one of the things is that, um, meditation and yoga have always just been like a, a practice that I do, but writing has been a different energy to it because it was the way I earned money for quite a while, which, which added this kind of whole other pressure where, where it wasn't just a fun practice. It was also my job. And, and I, and, you know, so there's a lot of like kind of difficult energy, I suppose, tied up with my writing that isn't so in yoga and meditation. Actually, I w I'm interested, Harmony, did you, because, you know, you make your money from yoga, right? Do you 
Does yeah. that sort of resonate with you on some level? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I I completely understand what you're saying and and it definitely resonates with me. It's it's always such a it's it's like a war almost inside sometimes <laughs> because you really I mean for me personally I just, you know, would love to just practice and like have all this time to focus on on meditation and yoga. And I kind of think back to earlier days when, I mean, I, I still was making a living from yoga, but it, it didn't seem like that hard. <laughs> it seemed like I had a lot of time to practice and do my own, my own focus on my own sort of spiritual path. And when I think when the yoga gets mixed with work, it's really challenging because um, especially when you're teaching classes a lot, you know, it's, it becomes, um, you know, you're doing yoga kind of all day long, but it's not your practice and it's not your yoga. <laughs> and so it's really, you kind of have to make your own time a priority um, and create it as something a little bit separate, even if that's just, you know, meditating or pranayama breathing or doing your asana practice. But the two feel very um, disconnected, I would say, in a, in, a, in a weird way, you know. Yeah, well, I definitely, you know, appreciate how difficult it is, you know, to sort of navigate the kind of crazy sort of world that yoga has become, you know, if you're sort of you know, trying to share your your gift and, and earn a living in that way. Um, yeah, it's a real sort of tricky thing, um, you know, tricky sort of areas to navigate because of the social media and it's all brand new, you know. Yeah, yeah and it's sort of like, you know, I just want to do my practice and not think about like, oh, I should make a video and post that on social media so that I can, while I'm practicing, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so that, so that I can like have something to post because I need to make a post today and I need to continually be promoting things. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, it gets relentless. Yeah. There's a constant pressure and, and so it kind of disturbs the energy of the practice because it's always sort of sitting in the back of your mind, like, well, what, what am I going to do to, you know, create a living basically. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, just to bring it back to writing, it was, it's like one of the most difficult things with journalism and which is what I was basically earning my living from was the competitiveness of it where, you know, you just had to be like, pretty ruthless in some ways to just get the story and like you know it's so hardcore and yeah that was also a tricky thing um Mm -hmm. so uh i don't know to answer your question i wouldn't know what life would be like without writing because i've always done it um but who knows maybe if i you know transition to a different type of work which is what i'm thinking quite seriously of doing yeah who knows maybe i'll just stop writing altogether i hope not i don't think i will but could happen you know yeah i just want to ask you before we we finish you know you have an amazing practice from what i've seen on social media i've never seen you in person practicing but one day maybe that will come true but you taught yourself pretty much almost all of the series is that true Okay, so this is this is like a, I didn't know how weird this was, but like basically, <laughs> but I want to I want to sh- share this because I think I want to just be an example 
or show people that that it's there is there is alternate routes, right? So this is the route I took. Basically, I was in Phnom Penh, and there was not many yoga teachers around. There was uh, this one guy. Um, I won't say his name, but he was a you know he taught yoga, and he knew the Ashtanga sequences. He had experience with Ashtanga, um, but he was not a fan of the Ashtanga communities. But I really wanted to learn, so he was kind of sort of grumpily like, "Oh, all right, fine, I'll I'll teach you." Um, now, by that stage, I'd already learned primary series. And so he was all like, oh, okay, well, you know, you know primary, so you definitely have to do second because primary and second should be like done together. And, like No one should be doing just primary, so you need to learn second series. So I was like, oh, okay then. So I happened to be going home for six months, so I just got Kino's intermediate DVD and was just like, okay, I'm just going to try doing all this stuff. And then, <laughs> you know, so basically – and then I came back and he worked with me a bit. And what, what ended up happening was that I learned second series by just doing the whole thing um, and just modifying poses I couldn't do, right? So I was doing like some version of every pose in second series right from the get-go. And so my experience of learning second series was like a kind of like you have the whole, you have the whole thing laid out and you just kind of build up, build up, build up, like maybe – you know, you you suddenly open your hips and then you can do the leg behind the head poses, but you can't do a uh, pincher, right? But then you can do the final three poses of, uh, you know, second, those kind of poses because yeah. they're yeah. like not the hardest. Right. So, yeah, and I didn't really understand that that was really non-orthodox, unorthodox, I should say. Um, you know, and then like after a few years, and this is this is a bad idea. So, like, I wouldn't recommend people do this. But after a few years, I was like, I'm bored with second. Uh, let's get Matthew Sweeney's book and like just do the yeah. same thing with third series. <laughs> right. And like, it, it kicked the shit out of me. Like, there was no way I could like do it like at all. And where did you I, get up to? Do you remember? No, I just tried the same method, Harmony. So I just yeah. did like all the poses, all but like just versions of them, right? So um, right. for. Um, Vaparita Shalabhasana, is that right? Vaparita, yeah. 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 yeah so for that, yeah. right. So for that, I just lay on my on my front and just try to lift my legs up, and then right. I would move on and you know try and do the splits, that sort of stuff. Okay, um, okay, yeah. Yeah. So I was doing that, and it, it was kind of built up, built up, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird because you know the th the yeah. thing is though that for for our generation that we did the reverse. Well, all of us did primary and built it, the whole thing up together, you know, in the, in the, in the nineties, you go to a primary led class yeah, and everybody did it together. You just did primary in like th different things would come at the same time. And then we were given intermediate pose by pose. Okay. And so it was just it was just the the reverse. Well, I was, yeah, I was going to say that the way you learned intermediate series is how I think a lot of people learn primary series is just sort of going to those lead classes and, and, you know, I mean, it's not like you say, it's not the orthodox way or the, the, you know, way you would learn it in Mysore, India necessarily. Um, but it's the way that a lot of people learn in the West because that was, those were, we didn't have Mysore classes back then. We That's only had true. lead classes. Yeah. And some book, and you'd look at the at the pic, the pictures in the back of the book. Yeah, and back then we were all watching David Swenson's DVDs. Yeah, or Richard Freeman. <laughs> they were actually v VHS videos. VHS tapes <laughs> with Willem Dafoe, and you, you, it's like, oh, I can if Willem Dafoe's fucking doing it, I can do it. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. So it wasn't that unusual after all. 
No, I think yes. I think it, and, and like any education, I would say maybe it's unique, but, but it's not unusual. But <laughs> with at the heart of education, it's just you learning, and you're always teaching yourself because you, if you're not, because if someone can come and teach you, but you still have to learn it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, having a teacher is is super useful um, for the subtleties that you wouldn't miss. You'd miss yeah. otherwise, obviously. But um, you know, like. If you're living in a place where you don't have access to that, then yeah, I suppose you just got to do what you got to do and try not to get injured. That's exactly right. The first, <laughs> the first time I ever tried any postures of second series, it was kind of a similar situation. A teacher here in the city, uh, Calgary, she, yeah, in Calgary, she was teaching one Mysore class on I think it was a Monday night at like seven thirty at night to to nine maybe p.m and so i i had been self-practicing and knew all of primary series and at that time i think i was maybe 21 or 22 and um you know could do everything pretty easily and she said okay you need to start intermediate series and she pulled out uh one of those stick figure sheets the john scott Scott ones that were famous or everybody had one yeah and she just put it in front of me and said, here are the postures, uh, give it a go. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> nice. And so I Welcome was like, to school. okay. <laughs> so I kept looking at the sheet and trying the postures and then she'd come over and then I'd be like, I don't understand what to do here. <laughs> she'd yeah. like explain it to me and help me and then walk away. And I was like, there's Murchison a D. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is <Wow>. different. <laughs> well, so like, I wonder what you think about the idea the idea of being given a pose because like I said, I've never in my life ever been given a pose. I always, you know, gave myself poses. Um, and like, yeah. you know, was I doing that wisely and safely all the time? No. But, um, you know, I find though the idea of like someone having that power a bit kind of off putting and it, maybe it's just an idea, just my background and the way I've come, but I didn't like the idea of like a teacher kind of like, being able to say okay you have to do this and repeat this for like you know as long as i deem you should like right. for me it felt a bit kind of stultifying and yeah so i don't know like like it's never been my experience and yeah i i didn't i didn't really find that that would have worked for me i don't know there is a there is there a great danger to entering into a um a relationship that is improper where, where there's really an improper power relationship between two people. And then something else happens that uh, touches the brain in the same way that cocaine does, where um, you start getting a dopamine fixation on achievement. And suddenly the whole practice of yoga explodes into um, uh, desire and and uh, getting more candy. So that's that then becomes a thing that you really want to go to a, a teacher and then be recognized and for that person to give you this shiny thing that then you get to wear like a like a Miss America crown. Mm. It's fucked up. That's that's so that's so well put, you know, and I don't know if you guys have seen that documentary The Vow, where like they get you know, like the most, one of the most messed up cults. And I'm like, I'm not saying that like Ashtanga is a cult, but 
you know, they had that system of like, you know, handing out um, like kind of sashes. Like everyone got to wear a different color sash depending on how many other poor sods they've got into the cult. Oh, right? wow. <laughs> and it's, wow. It's like, brilliant. That's the way to do work, it. They work. Yeah. yeah. It's effective. <laughs> It's super effective. It's the same, and, and video games are built exactly to that measure. You know, which sash, which coin, which which level can you get to 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 get to the next one, to get to the next shiny object? And and I mean, kung fu is built the same way. You know, what what belt, what sash do you get for what level? And then the the child in us gets to achieve something, while ostensibly they're they're learning to uh adjust to being human but it's a it's a real it's a real delicate balance there yeah like i mean in a way you could say that maybe it's better to like learn it the way that i learned it and you guys learned it to an extent you know and but then you know working with with really good teachers um you you, you some of those really really good teachers can handle that responsibility and manage all that stuff and make it a really positive experience but i think you have to be a really really good teacher to to really mm -hmm. navigate that like you're saying yeah i agree i think i think that's a, that that should be um a high bar to be that kind of to be a teacher mm. and uh it's um i'm not sure that i was i think i was just a real grumpy bastard when i was in england and <laughs> I just relished in the power of throwing people, throwing good English people out of my room. <laughs> mm. I, I sort of like the idea of getting, you know, getting postures from a teacher. I think it's, I mean, not that you necessarily need to learn the practice that way, but there is something, there is like a relationship that develops and and the teacher can see you, you know, sometimes more clearly than you can see yourself. Like when you've had those really like aha moments where the teacher, you know, someone's adjusted you in a posture and put you or taking you to a place that you didn't realize you could go. Um, I think there's something kind of, I don't know, special when the teacher sort of recognizes that you're ready for more. And it's like, ex I mean, it's, it is an external validation, right? Um, not to say that you, you necessarily need that, but it's, it can be helpful as like a measure to gauge your, your self and also keep your ego in check, you know, because sometimes people just want to do more. And, and I mean, as a teacher, you know, I, my question is like, why, why do you want to do more? Yeah. Like <laughs> you want that student. You want the student that can do it but doesn't want to. Yeah, or just like like more isn't always better. You know, and I think our tendency and our pattern is is to just want more for the sake of having more. Yeah. You know, instead yeah. of really like working and fine-tuning what we have and cherishing it and nurturing it and and letting it grow organically and and so I don't know. There's, I think there's, you know, it's not definitely not an either or thing. It's, I think there's both approaches, approaches have, have, you know, validity in, yeah, in different and, ways. And you, as a teacher, you've got to make sure people don't injure themselves, right? I mean, yeah. if you're a home practitioner, 
you know, like maybe, maybe, yeah, just like have a go. Just be like, okay, here's all the poses. Knock yourself out, right? And you probably will <laughs> at some point, right? But you, as a teacher, I, you can't do oh, that, man. right? So I have knocked students out. Yeah, exactly. As a teacher, you definitely you definitely want to like take care. You don't want people to, to injure themselves. And you also don't want to injure people. Right. And sometimes if people go too fast, it's, it's easy to end up in situations that you wouldn't want to be in. You were, you were talking about, um, Vipurita Shalambasana or, um, uh, what's Gandabarandasana earlier. And that reminded me of, when I was in Taiwan, I had this really able student named Ethan, and he could oh, just do everything. Him. Oh, you know Ethan? Uh, not not personally. I uh, hung out with him a little bit once in Bali. And I could just, anything I gave him, he could do better than I could. And it was incredible. And I just and I just gave him everything I could. And one day he was in Gandabrundasana with, you know, holding on to his ankles. And I said, oh, this is great. Let's take a photo. And I took a photo of him and he passed out and he started shaking uncontrollably in the middle of the Mysore room in front of like 65, 70 people. And I just looked and it's like, yeah, I did that. I just, uh, I hope, I wonder if he'll live. Oh my God. <laughs> and um, when he stopped having his seizure, because that's what he was having, he just suddenly burst up into upward dog and then downward dog and then did a vinyasa into the next posture. And I, and everyone's like really quiet in the room. And I said, uh, do you know you've been unconscious for like the last 45 seconds? And he, and he had no memory of it at all. Wow. And that was, um, it's at that point, I really kind of felt like it was a check on my own ego as a teacher like this is, this is really powerful stuff to be screwing around with. Um, good lord. Yeah, yeah, very powerful for sure. So that's, I think that's really interesting though that you you uh, tried to do all of third series by yourself <laughs> and fourth, as it turns out, and sounds- fourth no, series no, 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 as well. No, I never did. No no, I mean that's I, I've I basically never wanted to do fourth. I mean, you just I just looked at it. And I was like, oh, that that looks like it's not good. Um, so I, I'm not doing it. But like, what's what's interesting is is actually the first time in my nearly ten years of doing Ashtanga, I got given a I got given Mula Bandasana by Mark recently for the first oh. time, and I'm like, what oh, a good. Shiny I, don't, I really don't know. I was like, oh great, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm over this. <laughs> good. Good for you, that's, man. That's the best time to be given the posture. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Be afraid. When you're like, oh, I'm really, I'm not sure about this one. Be very afraid. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to have a teacher, though. It's nice to be able to practice under the guidance of someone and to, to not, to share in the community and have people to practice with. For sure. And he's he's helped me with my breathing so much, you know, because like I could do the poses, but I was doing like hard kind of survival breathing, as David Greek mm-hmm. says, you know, and yeah. uh, he's he's helped me so much. And that's really integrated the series for me. And I don't think I could have done that without a teacher. So, yeah, props for that, for sure. Yeah, amazing. Well, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. It's yeah, this has really, been fun. Really fun. I'm really fun getting to know you. Yeah, and you guys. Yeah, and thanks for uh yeah, like reaching out to a, a small 
uh, offering like mine and like, you know, like oh, I think you have us. so much to share. And if people haven't seen your Instagram account, they should totally check it out because you have awesome photos and your podcast is amazing. So they should. Well, thanks. They should thanks, Harmony. Yeah, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. It's uh, been really generous to just spend your time with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's tell been fun. us one. What's your Instagram handle? And then yeah, at yeah at esc samsara. Yeah, that's Instagram. And uh, the website is escaping-samsara.com. Perfect. I mean, there'll be links everywhere, all over the place. Can you, but... can you say the Instagram one more time? At? Yeah, uh, ESC Samsara. So E-S-C-S-A-M-A-R-A. Oh, there it is, Escaping yeah. Samsara. I'm following you right now. <laughs> there Hooray. you go. One Fantastic. new follower right this very Yay. second. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a nice Fantastic. well thank you so so much for joining us Nathan it was such a treat yeah thanks guys appreciate it thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me your host Harmony Slater you can find out more information on my website harmonyslater.com and I look forward to connecting with you again soon Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a hard wind and the soil